It had been close to three decades since the 1857 mutiny had shaken Company Raj. But as we saw, the company was replaced by the crown. Indian elites and some British reformers in this intervening period began to sense the need for a platform that would help channel nationalist aspirations, but within the confines of the empire. A range of provincial organizations were born, but a large national platform was still missing. Enter AOU, a British civil servant who had served as the administrator of Itawa during the mutiny. Hume was among those who felt that British rule in India needed to be more accommodative of the views of who he called its subjects. In 1883, Hume wrote a letter to the graduates of Calcutta University with a vision for a platform urging Indians to come together. Two years later, in December 1885, the first session. of the Indian National Congress was convened in Bombay over 70 delegates from all parts of India attended the session the congress in this session focused on demands that would win more space for indians within the british colonial structure be it through political participation or entry into the indian civil services the party also asked for a set of economic measures including the reduction of military expenditure to discuss this foundational moment in india's nationalist history I'm delighted to welcome to this podcast the historian Dinayar Patel, the author of the most authoritative biography of Dada Bhai Noroji, a pioneer of Indian nationalism who attended the first session of the Congress in 1885 and subsequently took over as the president of the Congress thrice. Dada Bhai Noroji is of course most famous for his devastating critique of the economic implications of British colonialism. He was also among the few Indian nationalists who directly intervened in British politics becoming a member of parliament in London. On that note, to discuss the founding of the INC, the role of the early nationalists and the impact they had on the wider arc of freedom struggle. Welcome Dinya. Thank you very much for having me here Prashant. Dinya take us back to the period between the mutiny and the early 80s. what had happened how were indian nationalists absorbing the lessons of the mutiny how were they dealing with the colonial empire so the first thing we have to remember is that this era the the late 19th century was in many ways a, a, a nadir in in the history of uh, modern india it it was a terrible moment uh, and it it really comes out very strongly in the letters and the writings you read from this period uh, this was a moment where indian intellectuals i mean any indian who had uh, the way with all to read about what was going on in the rest of the world realized that india had fallen very far behind uh, any other country and you know there was obviously a very strong knowledge about how india had once been a great uh, world important empire and when you contrast to this past history to the the degradations of what india had been reduced to by the late 19th century uh, it was painful and it was humiliating Uh, so the crop of individuals who we call the early nationalists those who who founded the congress party and were part of these various other organizations that were around 
both before and after 1885, uh, were individuals who were motivated in many ways uh, by desperation. Uh, they were desperate to have any sort of recourse uh, to improve the situation in India. Um, many of these individuals came from urban centers, right? I mean, they came from a Calcutta, they came from a, a Bombay, a, a, a Pune, or Madras of the time. Uh, but they knew that the cities that they lived in uh, were small little specks of prosperity in a country which otherwise uh, was riven with terrible poverty. And, and remember, this is an era where India is racked by famines. Uh, famines that, you know, I mean, India is no stranger to famines in terms of its broader history, but the pace of famines and the devastating scale of famines just accelerates exponentially after the 1850s. I mean, you have famines like, you know, the Madras famine in in 1876, which carries away millions of people. The Orissa famine in 1867, 1868, where perhaps one out of every three people in Orissa is killed. And these are famines which could in very large degree have been prevented had uh, British authorities stepped in. Uh, and, you know, even though individuals like, say, a Nauroji or a Ranade or a Gokhale or Surendranath Banerjee were living in relative comfort in cities, uh, they had families and friends who were living in the countryside who were affected by all of these tragedies. So the impetus for 1887 was in many ways one of desperation. And to link it with what you are asking about the mutiny, I mean, the one important thing we need to remember is that most of these nationalists from this era uh, did not look at the mutiny uh, as a proud moment, right? I mean, this this was an occasion which which many uh, nationalists thought of as being, uh, you know, somewhat backward looking. Uh, in the sense that, you know, they might have sympathized with uh, the desperation of those people who did rebel in 1857, but they thought that the idea of returning to something like a, resembling like what you had in the Mughal Empire was the wrong step. It was, it was moving back in time to something that they didn't want. Uh, and added to that, the, the British, of course, had cast the mutiny as, as an object of kind of a moment of betrayal. Uh, and so Indian nationalists had to respond to this. And whether they liked it or not, they had to always kind of preface whatever they said about the mutiny. Uh, with a line or two saying about how this was regrettable and, you know, we're happy that, you know, we've moved on since then. Uh, so, I mean, humiliation really, as you can tell from what I'm describing over here, that's really the, the dominant theme uh, in this era. It was an absolute low point in, in Indian history. How then did that translate into the formation of this national organization? You know, I mean, really from the 1840s onward, so I'm going to jump back a little bit in time, you really see efforts to organize together amongst various Indians in the big towns and cities, uh, but also occasionally across larger areas of, of rural India uh, in order to promote certain political and economic objectives. And this picks up steam uh, by the 1860s and 1870s. I mean, in the 1870s, you have organizations like the, the Pune Saravajanik Sabha in Pune, modern-day Pune, and its reach is is regional. It's not just, you know, relegated to Pune. I mean, it's, it's promoting activities which I've noticed in some of my most recent research, we're reaching as far as, you know, Gujarat uh, at one end and modern-day Karnataka at the other. Uh, they'd help put on events where people from as far away as Calcutta might have attended as well. Uh, and you see something similar happening in Calcutta with, with various organizations that were founded by people like uh, Surendranath Banerjee, predecessors of the Congress. So these were attempts to kind of look and say, a group of Indians had coalesced around certain ideas of political economic reform. And these were Indians who had, by and large, been educated in the English language at schools that had been set up by the British. Uh, and they realized that they needed to somehow put demands for change to kind of arrest this, this growth, this growth of poverty and, and depredation and kind of put India on the right track by demanding certain political and economic rights. You know, I mean, this has a long history. And of course, you can trace it back even further to someone like Ramohan Roy, depending on what precisely you're, you're talking about in this particular dynamic. But by the 1880s, the reason why the Congress is founded in 1885 is 
there's a general atmosphere of gloom and despair. But, you know, in the 1880s, you have a, a viceroy, Lord Ripon, who uh, is appointed, uh, who has a reformist streak. I mean, not terribly reformist, but Indian nationalists of this era would take anything they could get. And Ripon was rather sympathetic to many Indian uh, polit- political figures. So, I mean, Ripon knew people like Nauroji or Bairamji Malbari, and, or he knew many of the other intellectuals in places like Pune and, and Calcutta and Madras. And so these individuals were, were very buoyed by the idea that um, Ripon was talking about stuff like local self-government. Local self-government essentially meant provincial autonomy. You know, the Indian national strategy was take whatever you could get and ask for more. That, that's a phrase of, of Firosha Mehta's. And, you know, that's essentially what they did. I mean, you know, they, they took this idea of local government and they immediately started talking about something like national self-government. It was out of this kind of small little glimmer of light in the pervading darkness uh, that Indian nationalists were given kind of the incentive to form an organization like the Congress. So was, you know, just taking off from there, was this an enterprise that was encouraged by the British as a safety wall to channel Indian aspirations? Or was it an autonomous political enterprise of nationalist Indians? Or does the truth lie somewhere in the middle? So, you you know, I mean, by the 1920s and 1930s, there was this argument being bandied about by both Indian nationalists uh, and some Indians and Britons in Great Britain itself that the Congress had actually started as a conspiracy of sorts. <laughs> that, you know, A.O. Hume, uh, who was this, you know, as you mentioned, was this British civil servant kind of founded it as a way to kind of diffuse tension and kind of bring the interests of the Indian elites to bear with uh, the British Indian government. And that's completely false. I mean, in the sense that, you know, I mean, the idea that Hume wanted to kind of diffuse Indian nationalism is, is pretty much 180 degrees away from <laughs> what Hume's intentions actually were. So, I mean, Hume did use this phrase safety valve quite often. So, I mean, if you read his letters and also his published works, he uses this phrase all over the place. Uh, so what exactly does he mean? I mean, he talks about the Congress as being a safety valve. Essentially, what he wants the Congress to be a safety valve for is uh, preventing another mutiny. Hume had lived through the mutiny. He had fought in the mutiny. He had fought on, on the part of the British as well, of course. But, you know, Hume was one of those British officials who actually received a lot of support from Indians. Uh, because he was actually relatively enlightened and, and liked uh, by Indians. So, I mean, he was actually saved on multiple occasions by Indians in Etawa and, and, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, so Hume wanted to avoid a second mutiny, not because it would destroy the superstructure of British rule, but, but because he knew the, the chaos and destruction it would inflict on Indian society uh, if something terrible like this happened again. And, and that was his constant nightmare. As late as the 1890s, he's writing in the Congress saying, you know, if we don't do anything, another mutiny is going to you know, destroy India. I mean, this is a, a fear that kind of grips the Congress uh, in these years. And so the Congress being a safety valve was a means to kind of give Indians a space to vent their political frustrations and campaign for reform. That was the idea of a safety valve. Uh, now, the interests of the British Raj are very much secondary over here. Hume was someone who, I mean, he's, an, he's a really interesting guy. I mean, he was a, a, Scot, uh, a Scotsman, uh, but he was someone who eventually became an Indian in spirit and identity. He practiced yoga. He, he had a, a spiritual uh, guru in Almora. He actually identified as an Indian. Some Britons would, uh, you know, kind of blink and take a second look because he'd referred to us natives or we natives in the plural that, you know, he felt himself to be an Indian. I mean, he obviously was someone who wanted the British Empire to continue its, its, its presence in India, but the form of that would be very different. I mean, it was one where Indians would be empowered and in control of their affairs. So I think, you know, what you're pointing out is interesting that these early nationalists did not really envisage a political life for India outside the empire at this juncture. They were seeking greater voice and rights within. 
Now, what drove this? Was it tactical? Did it come from a deeply held belief in the possible advantages of British rule? Was it a position based on a sense of being inferior to British capabilities, or was that it was just a recognition of what's possible at that juncture? It's a little bit of everything. So, I mean, one thing we cannot dis- uh, discount is the fact that many of these Indian nationalists were people who thought that uh, British rule had a, a positive or a ben- uh, beneficial uh, effect. And this, you know, sentiment is across the board from people like Ranade or Nauruji to people like Surendra Banerjee uh, or, you know, many other figures who eventually become uh, radicals. I mean, even if you look at a figure like Bipin Chandrapal, uh, before he turns into a radical around the time of the Swadeshi movement, he's one of these figures who's also in London and is talking about how British rule has had uh, some beneficial uh, appeal. You know, someone, someone like Ranade essentially said, look, obviously India is in a terrible moment, but the fact that we have this British connection means that India could take advantage of uh, best that you know Britain could offer in terms of educational institutes, access to world markets. Uh, people like Dadabai Naroji felt the same way. I mean, he put a, a huge premium on the value of Western-style education. I mean, that was the transformative influence in his own life. And he, he thought that Western-style education through, with, with British help, uh, would really help transform aspects of, uh, of Indian society. Uh, and of course, they looked around the world and saw uh, other societies that were colonized by, you know, say the French or the Belgians or the Americans. Uh, and in some cases, they realized our situation is not as bad as theirs. So, uh, you know, in some cases, they said, no, actually, maybe we're worse off. I mean, later on, someone like Naroji will uh, contrast British rule unfavorably with, say, American rule in the Philippines. But, you know, there, there were examples on both sides of the board over here. So, I mean, we can't discount the fact that many of these people thought that British rule had positive effects. And someone like Naroji, you could kind of assign a percentage figure at different courses, at different stages of his life. I mean, in his early life, he thought maybe it was 50-50, good, bad. As he grew uh, older and more radical, that percentage changes dramatically. So that by the end of his life, maybe it's, you know, 5%, 95%. I mean, it's still there, but it's, it's changed in, in its proportion. Uh, now, in terms of other factors which explain why Indians in this era thought of stuff, uh, thought of any political future as being within the British Empire, uh, the answer is, as you kind of suggested, they didn't see many other possibilities. <laughs> if we were in 1885 and we were talking about the likelihood of India having a future outside of the British Empire, it sounds almost as preposterous as it does today for us to think of India being outside of an American-led capitalist global order. Okay, you just can't imagine that. And when you look again at the correspondence of these people, you know, people like Naroji or, or Dinsha Vacha were talking about how you know, India could get independence in 50, 100 years or 100 years. And they're, they're writing this in the early 1900s. 50 was closer to the mark, but, but some of them thought it would take centuries uh, because they did not see the British Empire going away at all. Uh, and indeed, you know, this is the moment where Pax Britannica is at its absolute height. I mean, the British Empire controls a good proportion of uh, the world's population and territory and uh, the, the world economy was dominated by Great Britain. How can you possibly imagine going against this Goliath? It was impossible to, 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 to kind of suggest that you could uh, have any sort of life outside of the British Empire. The Irish could not. And clearly, you know, I mean, the Irish were, were far more <laughs> radical and nationalist than, than the Indians were. So what chance did India have? So take us back then, you know, uh, to December 1885. Within this framework of being in the empire, what is it that nationalists thought they could achieve? What is it that they sought and demanded from the British? Yeah. 
So the nationalists had a very clear strategy of uh, saying different things in public from what they said to one another. Uh, so if you read the proceedings of the Congress, the first session from 1885 or you know any of the, the reports of the first Congress sessions all the way up through the early 1900s, they seem very loyalist and tame and almost sometimes the language is embarrassing in terms of their kind of florid praise for British rule. And they'll say hip hip hurrah to the, the queen or the king. Uh, they'll sing the British national anthem. And that was to a certain degree heartfelt, but it was also to a certain degree tactical. Uh, because again, in this era, the 1880s and, and 1890s, uh, people in the Congress knew that if they said anything different, like, you know, we want self-rule and we're not too happy with the way the British have ruled and we have ambivalent feelings about the way that uh, the British Empire has, has operated, you could easily be charged with something like sedition. Uh, and indeed, many of them were, right? I mean, you, you know, I mean, if, if you were too critical, uh, you ran the risk of uh, being uh, shut up by the British authorities. And, and you know, all of these nationalists uh, walked into this trap in many ways, uh, in the sense that um, Surendranath Banerjee actually jailed for contempt of court uh, in, I think, the 1880s. Bairamji Malbari, who was a newspaper editor, also had that issue. People like Dadabai Naroji were never charged with sedition, but many people openly called him seditious. And uh, Hume, Alan Octavian Hume, even though he was a British, uh, came very close to being charged with sedition uh, in the 1890s for talking about something like a second mutiny. Uh, so uh, in private, people said things very differently. And, you know, there, there was a remark that was apparently passed between Naroji and Hume at this first Congress uh, where Naroji said, you know, though we do not say so in public, our aims, after all, uh, are similar to that of the Irish, home rule. Uh, so, you know, the aims, they knew what they were after, right? I mean, they weren't just for incremental small little reform and then they just sit down and say, God bless the Queen. No, they, they, they wanted to start a movement uh, that, uh, you know, would lead to pretty uh, full-scale political reform. Uh, and again, if you look at newspapers from the 1870s and 1880s, there are references to self-government and self-rule all over the place. They're couched in, in a language of, uh, they're not direct demands, but they're there nevertheless. Building on that, in 1886, Dada Naroji takes over as president of the Congress. Uh, this is a figure you've spent a lot of time working on. Your book is, as I said in my introduction, the definitive biography. Tell us about Naroji. Tell us about his evolution, what his uh, uh, sense of the Congress was and how he led the Congress in the early years. I won't say my book is definitive in the sense that, you know, the, the first biography that came out of uh, on Dadabai Naroji by R.P. Masani in 1939 is definitely much more detailed than my book. So, I mean, if you want to read about everything about Naroji, that's the book you should go to. Mine kind of revolves around a particular theme of kind of the progression of Naroji's uh, life. Uh, but who was Naroji? I mean, in many senses, he was quite typical of this crop of educated elites uh, who had grown up in the major towns of, of British India, uh, which had European influence, uh, British influence. So Calcutta, Bombay, Pune, uh, Madras, uh, to a certain degree, places like Bangalore, you know, a few other towns here and there, Lahore, Karachi, uh, later on in, in the 19th century. So he, like, again, many of these other figures, figures like Gokhale, Ranade, grew up in relative poverty. I mean, not, not the worst poverty India, India had, not by far, uh, but poor nevertheless. Um, and he had the luck of, of receiving free education, state-sponsored education as a youth. Uh, and that kind of set him on uh, a trajectory to have a life uh, involved in public service. He wanted to kind of uh, give back to the, the country what they had given to them in terms of get, providing an education. Uh, so he and, again, all these other figures are involved in a gamut of reformist activities. Not just political reform, but social reform, religious reform, 
all of these individuals were, were quite deeply religious, um, but they weren't bigots. Uh, they were people who saw things wrong within their own religious traditions, and they wanted to bring about change, whether that was through stuff like the Brahmo Samaj or the, the, the Pratana Samaj, or uh, with Nauruji in the case of reformist Parsi organizations, or in the case of people like Badruddin Tayabji, uh, talking about uh, you know movements like the Anjumani Islam and, and things like that. So they, they came from a milieu which was Western-influenced, but they were very deeply grounded in the society they came from. I think a certain generation of scholarship and this persists to this day amongst many scholars, kind of dismiss these group of people as being mimic men of sort, you know, kind of white people with brown skin, uh, which I think is a really stupid characterization of these individuals, because, you know, if you read their writings, they feel very strongly, patriotically about, uh, about India, and they want to see some sort of change, not just for themselves, uh, as an earlier generation of scholarship had, had thought, but for India at large. I mean, when famines sweep through the country, uh, they're oftentimes on the ground seeing what's going wrong and they raise hell uh, in order to get the British authorities uh, to, to do something about it. So the way that Nauruji went about campaigning for reform is that uh, you know, he did something quite unconventional. Uh, he left India and spent decades in Great Britain. Now, why did he do that? Why would someone from Bombay want to go to London where the food is terrible, there's terrible smog, people you know, are not terribly accommodative towards British individuals. Uh, the reason he did that is because he realized that one of the problems of, of British rule in India was that you know, many Britons did not know what the hell was going on in India. They had completely incorrect views of what India was like. They thought, they thought India was growing more prosperous, that British rule was benign. And so from the 1860s onward, he made his life mission to kind of show Britons, you're wrong, and this is how you're wrong. Uh, and to, a, you know, I mean, it's, it sounds like a little bit of a naive strategy, kind of, you know, go to the heart of of empire and kind of preach against the guiding principles of it, but it actually worked to a degree. When I was doing my research, I was struck by the number of letters that Nauruji would receive from ordinary individuals all throughout the country of Great Britain saying, you've taught us that it's not all rosy in India and we want to see some sort of change. One of the ways in which he pointed out to the perils of British rule in India was with his theory of drain of wealth. Uh, we've read about it in school textbooks. Tell us about drain of wealth. What was his argument? Yeah, so the drain of wealth is a pretty fascinating idea. Uh, and we associate the drain of wealth idea with Nauroji, but the actual idea goes back very, very far back in history. As early as the 1780s, there were British officials in Bengal who were talking about how the country was being drained of its wealth. Uh, and their idea was essentially, you know, here you have this very wealthy province that had once been one of the richest parts of the world. Uh, and under British misrule, industries were collapsing, uh, the mechanisms for prosperity were being eviscerated, uh, and the British were literally taking money away from the country in terms of uh, produce and in terms of, of booty. Uh, so, you know, this has a very long provenance, uh, and both Britons and Indians developed this idea uh, from that point, the late 18th century uh, through the 1850s. So if you and I were sitting in Bombay in 1850 and you opened the newspaper, you'd actually see letters to the editor in English language papers where people were talking about this idea of a drain of wealth. So, you know, it doesn't just come from the air. It was around for a long time. Uh, but the thing that Nauruji did uh, was that he took this idea that India was growing poorer under British rule and kind of gave it heft uh, by giving support in terms of statistics and, and numbers. Uh, so what he does is probably his greatest contribution to economic literature at this time is uh, he makes a very rough estimate of uh, average income, you know, what we'd call today GDP per capita. Uh, and he comes up with this figure that says essentially that on average, uh, Indians, you know, make about two pounds a year. 
that sounds terrible today. It sounded pretty terrible also in the 1870s. Uh, and he essentially used statistics to show that you couldn't really do much with two pounds. Uh, you could barely keep yourself alive in a jail. You could barely keep yourself alive if you were a migrant going out to Malaya or the, or the, the West Indies on a boat. Uh, so what on earth could you do with two pounds if you were a farmer in India, uh, subject to the variations of the monsoon and uh, you know having to deal with all sorts of family ceremonies and that were good or bad? Essentially, what he said is that, look, Indians have become so poor under British rule due to policies of taxation, uh, due to the actual physical drain of wealth through the amount of money that was spent on this large kind of European-dominated uh, British uh, administration, that with the amount of money that Indians had uh, in order to live their lives, they were living on the precipice of starvation. And when something like a drought occurred, it only took a few instances to change a drought that today might not really do much to the environment or a farmer today into something which would, could kill millions of people in, in mass famines. So that was his main argument. Indians had been reduced to such a low level of impoverishment through this drain of wealth uh, that they were literally on the precipice of starvation. So, so by the time uh, we come to the early 20th century, the Congress has been in place for 15 years or so. These arguments have become more pronounced and legitimate. But we begin to see internal factionalism within the Congress on ideological and political lines and the approach to take vis-a-vis -vis the British. This is when Naroji actually returns to India in 1906 and becomes the president of Congress. How does he navigate the extremist moderate divide and how do they see him? As you mentioned, in the early 20th century, you started to see signs of a division. Many individuals like Naroji or Vacha or Ranadev were skeptical of people like Bal Gangadhar Tilak. I mean, openly skeptical, even though they supported him during his first trial for sedition in the, in the late 1890s. But of course, these fissures widen after the partition of Bengal. And you have a group of radicals who are obviously saying, look, here is perfect proof of the nefarious policies of British rule. Uh, and what on earth are these moderates doing? People like Gokhale or Nauroji or, or Ranade talking about the need for petitioning. Uh, the need to work in constitutional uh, methods when those very constitutional methods are themselves flawed and stacked against us. So it was a very legitimate grievance that many people had. Now, Ruchi was an interesting character in the sense that for most of his political career, he was regarded as the radical. Radical in a relative sense, right? I mean, he never really talked about open rebellion. Uh, he always was someone who kind of couched his language in a certain level of loyalty, but he could be very hard-hitting. It took guts to be in the House of Commons and basically say that the British had turned Indians into slaves or that the British were foreign people who did not really deserve to, to rule an entity like India. I mean, that took real guts. That type of language scared many moder moderates, you know, of the time. Uh, and the, the one thing that, that Naroji did that scared a lot of moderates in, in the early Congress also was allying with the Irish. Many Indian moderates found the Irish way too radical. Uh, and way too revolutionary. And Nauroji thought, no, the, these guys are doing what we need to do. I mean, this is before Sinn Féin, but still in an era where Irish men and Irish women are going to jail, uh, defying British authority. Uh, so Nauroji was, as I said, you know, considered a radical for a good chunk of this time. But by 1903, 1904, 1905, there's a faction which is now looking at him as being too moderate. Uh, at the same time, Many moderates in the Congress, again, people like Firosha Mehta, Gokhale, Dinsha Vacha, regard him as being too radical. <laughs> so he's kind of stuck in the middle. In 1906, uh, he is invited back to be president of the Congress. And the Congress was on the precipice of being split into two factions. And of course, we know that in 1907, it did. Um, and one faction led by Tilak wanted to endorse this idea of 
boycott during the Swadeshi movement and uh, talk about the need for passive resistance and something called national education, where, you know, Indians would kind of separate themselves from British institutions and do their own thing. And the moderates said, no, you know, we can't do that. We, you know, that's that's extra constitutional. Nauruji kind of lodged himself in the middle. So, you know, he supported Swadeshi. He declared that the goal of the Congress was the idea of, of Swaraj, and he used that term Swaraj specifically. This was a term that had been popularized by Tilak. Uh, so in many ways, he kind of gave the radicals what they wanted, uh, what they wanted to hear. And remember also that Nauruji at this point is 81 years old. He's so old that he cannot give his own speech himself. He gives it to Gokhale. You know, for years, he had been trying to get Gokhale to adopt more radical positions. And this was kind of a sneaky way to get, you know, Gokhale to say stuff like, you know, our demand is Swaraj uh, by literally putting his own words in Gokhale's mouth. <laughs> so, you know, many moderates were not happy with what they heard when Nauruji gave his talk. But at the same time, he refused to endorse the idea of boycott. He said, you know, India still needed to petition. In fact, he said the problem was not that India had petitioned too much, was that it was rather that India had petitioned too little. In some cases, he gave a fillip to the radicals. Uh, In some cases, he disappointed the radicals. But from what I can tell, at least, from my own research and different historians have different takes, I think he definitely kind of passed on the torch to them to a degree where it gave them the confidence to do what they did in 1907, which was kind of split up the Congress. I mean, Naroji probably would not have wanted the Congress to split up. uh, But uh, you can tell that, you know, in the days after the 1906 Congress, Tilak is very happy with what Naroji has said. I mean, he said, look, you know, I I don't agree with a lot of what Naroji has done in his life in terms of uh, just demanding petitions and uh, constitutional change. But he told us in the speech that method hasn't worked very well. Uh, and that he's open to some sort of change, including, you know, the idea of supporting Swadeshi. So many people saw a very frustrated Naroji as a sign that, you know, maybe we can incorporate greater methods than just those that the moderates had, had done for the past 30 years. So in terms of demand, it seems what you're suggesting is that Naroji became more radical. In terms of methods, he did open up a little more, but he was still more cautious than the prevailing mood within the extremist faction of the Congress. Uh, looking back... How would you place these early years of Indian nationalism uh, within the framework of the Congress in the context of the broader arc of the freedom struggle? Uh, We know that Congress eventually ended up becoming the primary vehicle of nationalist aspirations. Maybe the founders in 1885 did not know that, or maybe they did. But, But how would you, in retrospect, assess those early years? It was a fascinating period. Many historians have dismissed this period as one of kind of boring old figures, kind of sitting in tents and talking about elite topics. It's great that they've done it because they allow people like me to kind of write what really went on. <laughs> you know? So I'm, I'm very happy that a group of, you know, many historians have not touched this period because there's a lot to write about and I find it very interesting. I mean, they were campaigning for all sorts of things, things that you and I might, you know, might kind of batch our heads and say, wow, you know, they were thinking of this at this point in time. They were talking about things like uh, the need for police reform, legal reform. They were talking about um, rural banks, agricultural reform and change, industrial need for promoting industries. I mean, Hadi was something that was discussed by some of these guys also. It's not just Gandhi, right? I mean, people earlier on were talking about the need for Hadi production and homespun production and the need to promote uh, rural industries. So the Congress was a big tent that kind of incorporated all sorts of people thinking all sorts of different things. There were, there were people in the Congress who thought India should have its own colonies outside of India to kind of siphon off excess population uh, to places like East Africa or the West Indies. There were others who saw Burma as being a part of India and were kind of 
doing their best to kind of integrate Burma into into part of uh, the rest of the country as well. Lots of different ideas were were kind of uh, going on in this tent. And at the same time, the Congress was probably more deep than we give it, we, we kind of credit it uh, for being. At least in certain parts of the countries, it was deeper. I mean, we, we know that in the Madras presidency, at least, where Alan Octavian Hume was quite active, uh, he set up um, infrastructure throughout the presidency where every major town would have a Congress office and there would be elections uh, held, or at least that were supposed to be held uh, in these towns. Uh, so he actually calculated in the late 1880s that the electorate of the Congress, people in India electing delegates to the annual Congress, now, so, I mean, these were people with ambitious goals, uh, and they knew what they were doing. I mean, they were establishing a parallel government, but they were establishing an organization which in many ways uh, functioned as, you know, an alternative stream to just working within the British Indian government. They knew they were setting up important foundations for something that would happen later on. For that reason, you know, I mean, when you look at people like Gandhi, Gandhi does not dismiss this era of early nationalist activity. I mean, if you read Hind Swaraj, I mean, he starts off Hind Swaraj by saying that, you know, if not for these individuals, your Ranades, your Gokhales, your Narojis, uh, what have you, we would not be able to do what we did because they kind of laid the foundation. And only once they had laid the foundation could we actually stand on the shoulder of giants and see further out and, and do more things. Dinyar, thank you for taking us through this fascinating episode of India's nationalist struggle when in 1885, out of a mood of despair and gloom, and a sense of humiliation, a set of Indian reformers came together, set up the Indian National Congress. This represented a wide constellation from what I understood of interests, views, but what they had in common was recognition of the certain moment. You couldn't take on the British aggressively, frontally, imagine a life outside the empire, but could you fight for political change, economic reforms within? Could you create public opinion inside the country? And could you fight and change public opinion in London? And eventually, that movement ended up becoming the primary vehicle of Indian nationalism. Thank you for introducing our listeners to it. Please stay with us on this journey as we continue our exploration of the road to 1947. Thank you. Thank you, Prashant. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.